think by the time the instrument was taken across the Atlantic, it was already understood to have a, an important heritage. The figure of um, Ian Dahl, the, the grandfather who gives it that importance. So it's both a working tool that is valuable and a cultural thing. Things, a global conversation presented by Old Tail Museum and Gardens and the Museum of Early Southern Decorative Arts. My name is Ben Masterson, and I'm an education coordinator, a joiner, and music programmer here at Old Salem and Mesda. In each episode of Things, we aim to use objects to bring, or to draw rather, out larger connections between people across historical, geographical, social, and political lines. And in today's episode, we're joined by Daniel Ackerman, the interim chief curator at Old Salem Museum and Gardens, and the Museum of Early Southern Decorative Arts here in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And joining us from across the Atlantic in Edinburgh, Scotland, is Stephen Jackson. Stephen is the Senior Curator of Furniture and Woodwork at National Museum Scotland. So today we'll be discussing immigration through the lens of two objects that made the journey from Scotland to North America. John Roy Mackay carried his grandfather's bagpipes with him when he emigrated to Nova Scotia, Canada from Scotland in 1805. 21-year-old Robert Walker, a Scottish cabinet maker, chose to bring his copy of Thomas Sheraton's Cabinet Maker and Upholster's drawing book as he emigrated to New York and eventually settled in Charleston, South, uh, South Carolina. So for those of you joining us live, uh, we welcome your questions at the end of the program. You can just type them in the Q&A section as we go along. So it's my pleasure to first introduce my friend and colleague of the last five years, Daniel Ackerman. Daniel is the interim chief curator and director of collections at Old Salem Museum and Gardens and the Museum of Early Southern Decorative Arts. He also directs the Mesda Summer Institute, a graduate level program partnership between the museum and the University of Virginia. Daniel has curated a wide range of exhibits at the museum, including black and white, all mixed together, the hidden legacy of enslaved craftsmen and our spirited ancestors, the decorative art of drink. As curator of Mesda, Daniel has also managed the renovation and reinstallation of the museum's study galleries and oversaw the addition of two new self-guided galleries. He serves as the American Secretary for the Regional Furniture Society of Britain. Daniel began his career at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, where he was the Tiffany & Company Foundation Curatorial Intern in American Decorative Arts. He holds a degree from the College of William & Mary, the University of Virginia, and a PhD in art history from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. So Daniel, thank you so much for starting us off today. Uh, we're really excited to hear about the story of Robert Walker immigrating to America and how his prize book came to be housed at Mesda. So welcome. Thank, thank you, Ben, thank you so much. It's really good to see you. And um, I appreciate this opportunity to share um, a really interesting uh, story with everybody who is joining us. So as I thought about this topic and the idea of immigration and the things that, uh, that we choose to bring with us, my thoughts kept returning to uh, my own family, uh, and in particular, my grandfather, who in August of 1937 uh, was lucky enough to be able to leave Nazi Germany uh, for America. Now, he had no choice but to emigrate to America. Uh, and indeed, he was very fortunate thanks to cousins in Monroe, Louisiana, that he could. But he was faced with an essential immigrant's dilemma. What would he bring with him? Now, the Nazis cared very little that he was leaving, but they cared a great deal about what he chose to bring with him. And so um, it was for him, and indeed for any immigrant, this question between what he wanted to bring, what he could bring, and of course, what he chose to bring. Uh, in 1793, Robert Walker uh, left his home in Cooper, Fife, Scotland for America, and he was faced with a similar dilemma. What would he bring with him? Now, unlike my grandfather, Walker left, as far as we know, uh, entirely in search of opportunity. He was 21 years old, had almost certainly just finished his apprenticeship as a cabinet maker, um, and we don't know with whom he trained, but we do know, uh, in fact, thanks to, to Stephen, um, who his parents were. Uh, his parents were James Walker and Janet Hardy. He had a twin brother named John 
this is an image of Cooper and this is the church where he was baptized. Um, and at this time, Cooper was um, the county seat for Fife, a market center, um, and a place sort of just on the cusp of growth uh, that 19th, the 19th century would bring. Now, when Walker left Cooper in 1793, we don't know everything he chose to bring. Now, having just completed his apprenticeship, we might assume he had a set of tools, um, but what we do know is that he brought at least three books with him. A copy of George Semple's A Treatise of Building on Water, published in Dublin in 1776. The 1793 edition of the London Cabinet Makers Book of Prices, containing designs by George Hepplewhite and others, and a copy of the first edition of Thomas Chippendale's, I'm sorry, uh, a copy of the first edition of Thomas Sheridan's Cabinet Makers and Upholsterer's Drawing Book, the last section of which had just been published. Now, we know this because during research for the furniture of Charleston, Brad Rauschenberg discovered these works in the family of Walker descendants who still lived in South Carolina. Now, while we can no longer locate the copy of the London Cabinet Makers Book of Prices, his copy of Sheraton is now in the Mestic Collection. And these works represent at least part of Walker's answer to that question, what will I bring with me from my old home to my new home? Now, the book itself is about the size of an iPad in dimensions, though it's, of course, much thicker, about four inches thick, in fact. And this particular copy is bound in brown leather with the title Sheraton Cabinet Maker embossed on its spine. Now, Robert has stamped its covers, front and back, with his name using his tool stamp. Now, this copy has certainly lived a life and been very well used. Uh, from the wear on the spine, you can tell how it was pulled off the shelf again and again until the leather between the head cap and the first of its decorative bands was entirely destroyed. And the dog-eared and stained pages you know, similarly reflect this history of use. Now, Walker has marked his volume throughout with his name as well as his tool stamp. And I, I think this is as much a mark of his pride and ownership of the volume, as well as his attempt to imprint his ownership on it in case it should ever be lost or stolen. I mean, this is something that is very valuable. It would have been very expensive. It would have been very vital to his work in America. Now, Walker also notes dates and his own physical location in the books. Robert Walker, Cooper, Fife, North Britain, for example, as well as the date, 1792, perhaps when he acquired the first part of Sheraton's work. Uh, or he writes, uh, Robert Walker, Cooper, Scotland, 20th August, 1793, on his copy of the London Book of Prices. Now, exactly two months later, on August 20th, 1793, he inscribes his copy of the London Captain Maker's Book of Prices again this time, Robert Walker, cabinet maker, New York, North America. And in his copy of Sheraton, he writes more simply, Robert Walker, New York, 1793. I think it's interesting that Walker used these books, especially the two furniture design books, in much the same way some people use a family Bible. In addition to what we might consider marks of ownership, he inscribes vital information about his location on specific dates. They become essentially vital records of his career. Two years later, for example, he tells us that he's in Charleston, South Carolina on November 1st, 1795. Now, we don't know exactly why Walker chose to leave New York for Charleston, but there are probably two major reasons. First, Charleston had the largest per capita income of any city in the new United States. Its wealthy elite, with their fortunes made in rice, indigo, and soon cotton, grown through the vast exploitation of enslaved labor, were rabid consumers of the kind of newly fashionable furniture being made in London and Scotland after the designs of people like Thomas Sheraton and George Hepplewhite. Also in Charleston, Walker found a community of fellow Scottish immigrants. They had, for example, established First Scots Presbyterian Church, whose rites, including the use of communion tokens, would have been very familiar to him. And, and in fact, as sort of a testament to the success of Charleston's Scottish community, uh, they even chose to make their tokens out of silver. 
This is a pattern we still see today uh, in which established immigrant communities attract um, and help their fellow immigrants to become established in their new homes. And importantly for Walker, among the trades dominated in Charleston by his fellow Scotsmen was cabinet making. Charleston cabinet making at the end of the 18th century was dominated by two major ethnic groups, uh, two major groups of immigrant craftsmen. There was, as my colleague Gary Albert has written, a definable group of German speaking and German um, immigrant cabinet makers, as well as a definable group of Scottish cabinet makers. Um, and here you see two examples, um, both in the room with me, but also on the screen, um, an object by Jacob Sass, one of these German school cabinet makers on the right, and an image of an object um, by Robert Walker, very much in the Scottish style on um, the left. Is that right? No. We'll edit this. It's Jacob Sass on the left and Robert Walker on the right. Um, Walker would have worked in various shops as a journeyman during this time. In 1799, uh, he then becomes a naturalized citizen of the United States. And in 1801, he established a partnership with fellow immigrant Charles Watts, a cabinet maker and merchant whose account books at Winneter reveal connections to a network of cabinet makers in New York, England, and Scotland. Now that partnership eventually dissolves amicably in 1803 when Watts leaves Charleston. And in fact, according to his account books, later that year, he was in England and Scotland. And among the places he went was Fife. And so we have to wonder if perhaps uh, he brings um, news of Walker's work in Charleston to his parents back home in Fife. Um, when Watts left Charleston, he sold Walker all the furniture they had on hand as well as eight enslaved persons, uh, Tom, Simon, Junior, Simon Senior, Sam, Abram, Jasper, Maria, and Jen. Now, in Charleston, Walker's shop would eventually rely on the labor of journeymen, apprentices, and enslaved craftsmen. And we know the names of at least four of these enslaved cabinet makers, Simon, Daniel, Rob, and James. And we know their names because they ran away and Walker advertised for their return. They sought to avail themselves of the same thing Walker did when he left Scotland, freedom of movement in an effort to find a better life for themselves. Uh, and in this case, with nothing but the clothes on their back and the skills in their heads. We also know from some of these ads that Walker um, acquired some enslaved individuals who were themselves uh, forced immigrants from Africa as well as from other states. For example, in 1810, he advertises for an enslaved man named James, who had previously been enslaved by the cabinet maker James Alcock in Richmond, Virginia. Certainly by any economic, if not moral measure, Robert Walker's choice to leave Scotland for America was a successful one. His choice to bring books as well as his training and probably tools put him in good stead to offer his clients in Charleston exactly what they wanted, furniture being of the latest and most approved London fashions. Now his success rested on many things, including his training, tools, and the books he brought. And it also rested on the luck and labor of those who had no choice, people like Simon, Daniel, Rob, and James. When he died in 1833, he left an estate worth more than $37,000, and the majority of this wealth was in bank, insurance, and railroad stock. Though the 1830 census showed that his household included four enslaved individuals, only one appears in his inventory. With his shop presumably waning in his later years, I wonder if this reflects exactly how much enslaved labor actually contributed to the shop. And with those skilled craftsmen who were enslaved, hold on, I see the sentence, since we're editing, I can do this again. With the shop presumably waning in his later years, I wonder if this reflects how much enslaved labor really contributed to the shop. And with those skilled craftsmen who were enslaved within it, sold off once their labor was no longer required. His probate inventory lists just a single woman 
named Esther, who's tragically listed on the same line as the kitchen furniture. His brother John's tombstone in the cemetery in Cooper suggests a life well-lived by him as well. He and his wife had 11 children and presumably benefited from Cooper's 19th century economic successes. But I wonder how often they heard from Brother Robert in America, and I wonder if he thought of them when he looked through the pages of the books he brought with him and saw the inscriptions he wrote as a young man. Robert Walker brought tools, his trade, and his books with him to America. Now, my grandfather had fewer options. As I said at the beginning, the Nazis cared little that he was leaving, but they cared a great deal about what he took with him. An accountant, he was able to bring his trade in his head, but he was extremely limited as to what he could physically bring with him. And so he took his money and he bought a Leica camera, a camera that I still have and use today. And I wonder what motivated him in that choice. Was it a splurge on a hobby? Was it just one of the few things he was allowed to bring with him? Or was it a desire to be able to document and perhaps share his new life? As we think about the choices that immigrants make when they come to a new country, these are questions that are also important today. As we think about the work of artists like Tom Kiefer, who document the objects confiscated by migrants at the southern border. These questions about what you can bring, what you want to bring, and what you do bring. And ultimately, these are the same questions that Robert Walker, my grandfather, and people today ask constantly um, through the language of things. Daniel, thank you so much for that insightful pre uh, presentation. Um, it really is amazing to hear these stories of immigration, and it's wonderful that we have these objects. Um, you know, when you're talking about Robert Walker's book, and all of these things that are documented in that book, it becomes this picture window into a really complex story. So thank you so much. And I can't wait till we can get into the questions and really unpack some of this. But I think what we'll do is we'll invite our, our guest and I'd like to go ahead and introduce Stephen. And then, um, like I say, we'll circle back around and we'll get to some wonderful questions here as well. And some really stimulating dialogue. So now joining us all the way from his home in Edinburgh, Scotland is Stephen Jackson. Uh, Stephen is the Senior Curator, Furniture and Woodwork at National Museum Scotland. He previously worked at the V&A as well as in local authority and university museums. He read history at Gondor and Keys College, Cambridge and completed an MPhil at St. Andrews University on the subject of Scottish furniture. He worked for over a decade on major capital projects at the National Museum of Scotland also continuing to work widely within, uh, within furniture history. His published research ranges from Scottish cabinet makers in America to the patrons of Charles Rennie Mackintosh. For National Museum Scotland, he has acquired items by makers and designers ranging from Lucio De Lucci and Thomas Chippendale to Daniel uh, Cotier and William Trotter. In 2007, he curated Green Design Creativity with a Conscience, one of the first exhibitions anywhere to address sustainability. He served on the Interiors and Collections Advisory Panel of the National Trust for Scotland and is currently at Museum Gallery Scotland. Stephen sits in the Council of the Regional Furniture Society and since 2019 has edited the journal Regional Furniture. So Stephen, thank you so much for being with us today. I'm very excited to hear the story of uh, John Roy Mackay, and his grandfather's chanter, which has endured so many centuries and so many miles to finally find its way back to its safekeeping with you in Scotland. So thank you very much, Stephen. This is Ian Dahl's chanter. This is the oldest bagpipe chanter from Scotland in existence. Um, it is thought to have been made sometime at the very end of the 17th century, or possibly the very beginning of the 18th century. And, it, and it's, you know, a good 60 to 80 years older than the next surviving oldest bagpipe chanter. Um, I'll talk a little bit about its importance as a musical instrument, perhaps towards, towards the end. Um, but um, on the understanding that I appreciate many of you may not be connoisseurs of bagpipe music, um, the chanter is, is the melodic part of the instrument that plays the tune. But of course, the, the purpose of the bagpipe is to play those tunes against 
uh, drones as well. So there are all sorts of bits of timber sticking out of a bagpipe. Um, and when this object crossed the Atlantic in 1805, uh, we can presume that it was actually part of a full set of bagpipes with the bag, the mouthpiece, uh, two or three drones, and, and this part. But at some time uh, through the 19th century, having been constantly played, um, for it was played for possibly nearly 200 years, getting on for that long, uh, the other parts of it were lost. And this piece survived. Now, as I say, my emigrant is John Roy Mackay, and he comes from a very different part of Scotland, really, from Robert Walker. Um, I don't know whether if, if we, Walker is in Fife here, you may or may not be able to see the, the, um, the arrow, but Mackay came from uh, the area around Gaelach, um, which is in the northwest highlands of Scotland. And this is within the Gaeltoch. So we're dealing with a contrast between the highland areas, um, relatively remote from the seat of government in Edinburgh and, and part of, of, of the so-called Central Belt um, in, in Fife. They, these, these two individuals are coming from very different parts of Scotland. And of course, he travels to Canada. He travels specifically to Nova Scotia. Um, which is being settled particularly by Scots from, or by Gales from, the Gaelic-speaking parts of the Highlands during these years. Um, Nova Scotia had been grabbed um, for, uh, for the king way back at the beginning of the 17th century, but was really only being populated in any serious fashion um, from the end of the 18th century. Um, and the story here is clearly a very contrasting one to that of Robert Walker. Um, the people who are traveling in, in, in boatloads um, from the Highlands to Nova Scotia are doing so out of as much out of desperation as opportunity. Um, they're hoping that they will find some kind of um, economic advancement and to settle and farm their own land um, in Canada but they're really very much being forced away by economic change in the Highlands, which is quite a complicated process that lasts for several hundreds of years, really. Um, but the precise time that this is happening, 1805, um, is shortly before the, the most famous period of the Highland clearances. Um, but, it's, but people have been leaving the Highlands for the Americas for quite some time leading up to this point. Um, main reason for this over time is that um, the Highland landlords, those at the top of the traditional um, Gallic society, uh, need to increase their rental income in order to maintain their position vis-a-vis -vis their lowland cousins, effectively. Um, and, and this means agricultural improvement, and it means changing the way people farm what is a very relatively poor land. Um, that in turn leads to, the, to breaking up the way that the land is farmed in, in, in the traditional ways. Emigrating to Canada, Canada gives these people the option of finding a small holding or squatting uh, very often without formal ownership of the land, but, to, but trying to replicate the farming lifestyle that they've left behind. Um, somewhat during this period and increasingly afterwards, um, the, the, change, the, the changes in the highlands gather pace and um, many, many areas are cleared for sheep and, and enormous numbers of people take this journey. Um, at this time, uh, the journey is, 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 is still relatively in the early stages of the depopulation. Anyway, it would have taken John Roy Mackay about nine weeks to sail across the Atlantic there um, with his wife and seven of his eight children. The Mackays actually went about 10 miles to the south of Pictou and settled at a place called New Glasgow. Uh, and um, over time, um, they did prosper. And what's interesting about these, I, I'm painting these, the, these emigrants as being, being really very much forced to leave, uh, which they were. But um, John Roy Mackay's status in the society he came from um, was relatively uh, respectable and secure because he was the piper to um, his landlord and his um who is sir hector mackenzie so mackenzie is not in fact a sort of a clan chieftain because the mackays had come from lord ray's 
uh, country to the north of, of here. But the, um, the family, the Mackay family, had supplied pipers um, to the Lairds of Gerloch over eight generations of the Lairds, or across four generations of pipers, leading up to the point that uh, John leaves. And um, we, uh, I'll pop across here. This is Pictou, very briefly, in about 1840, a very smart looking town that's really about to explode um, because further inland coal is discovered. And by the middle of the 19th century, the whole area has become very heavily industrialized. Um, as I say, uh, children do very well for themselves. His younger son becomes this stipendary magistrate of Glasgow, um, a very respectable man. And really, they, 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 the last thing they expected in 1805 was that this area would become heavily industrialized on the back of um, uh, coal mining. Where they came from, um, this is an aerial shot of Loch Mar. Now, on the, they come from the left hand side of this, um, and I mentioned this sun. The, the, the object that we're talking about bringing across, the set of bagpipes, um, on that nine-week voyage, they would have had, of course, to, they couldn't have taken very much with them at all. Um, but as a piper, the tools of one's trade were the pipes. And uh, Mackay was, was, was uh, about 53 years of age when he went to Canada. So what he was really trying to do was unlock opportunity for his children as much as anything else. Um, his older son uh, learned the pipes from him, um, but his younger son did not. It was the younger son who inherited uh, the chanter and which from whom it was passed down succeeding generations. And it was the, uh, the, his family's descendants who very kindly gave it to the National Museum 10 years ago. Um, now, uh, as I say, the, the younger son wrote a very interesting memoir in 1873. And um, it's interesting to look at how he felt about uh, Scotland, the country that clearly he never saw again after the age of 11. But he, he wrote, Oh, how I remember those haunts of my childhood, where I roamed at large without a care or thought, enjoying the wild luxuriance of the scenes around me, the green glassy glades, the giant oak trees, the rivers and brooks and waterfalls, the rent and rifted rocks, and especially the smooth and glassy surface of the loch, with its yellow border of golden sand and its trout and wild geese and swans and ducks. And it's quite intriguing the degree to which, as a eventually prosperous and settled um, migrant, he still felt um, very strongly about the, the land that he'd come from. Um, very briefly, I'll show you here a picture of uh, George W. Sisson in 1859. Um, after the uh, kind of depopulation of the highlands had really reached a crescendo and, 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 and a very great deal had broken down in the traditional society in the northern parts of Scotland, this uh, couple are um, emigrants to the Canadian backwards and the painting obviously is of a highly romanticized of the um, sorrow uh, leaving um, home and what of course is the man doing while well, he's playing the pipes which has become by that stage highly emblematic of Gaelic culture and is also becoming something of a symbol of Scottish culture as well but we need to remember that in 1805 uh, for lowland Scots the bagpipes were still symbolic of highland culture only something which they did not partake in, something which was really quite other. Um, so this paint, slightly later painting is showing that kind of gradual process of romanticization and the adoption of um, the bagpipe as a national instrument. Um, I will briefly say something about the instrument because it is incredibly important. Um, it was owned, as I say, by um, John Roy Mackay's grandfather, the blind piper or Ian Dahl Mackay, um, who was the second in the succession of uh, Mackay Pipers before, uh, to the Lairds in Gerloch. Um, and once again, I'll have to uh, appreciate that um, I don't want to bore anybody, um, and I'm not really an expert in these matters, but um, 
the 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 bagpipes do occupy a very important part in the history of Gaelic culture um, and the transmitted Gaelic song and music, most really. Um, this is the high, the high, the high point of piping, perhaps culturally, um, would have been in the 17th and 18th centuries. Um, the the piper piping bagpiping uh, was late. Highland Scotland, probably the 16th century, perhaps the 15th century, um, because they were once very common all over Europe. But once established in very brief terms, they did take over them. They became the primary means of expressing the traditional music, which pre prior to that had probably been one-strung harp music. Um, and when we look at these instruments, we're getting, which were incredible, this is, this is unique, this particular instrument, but even late 18th century examples are very rare. We're getting a window into how music was performed at that time, because this is a very different kind of musical culture from mainstream European classical music. Um, it is transmitted orally from piper to piper, and many of the tunes, whether they are established or whether they are invented and composed anew, um, were passed down very much from the uh, teacher to the pupil, and they're, they're, they, you know they're kind of guarded property if you like there's this heritage this this means of being able to earn money by piping to be in command not only to be talented but also in command of the tunes uh, the instrument itself is made of lignum vitae which will have come from the caribbean that's in itself interesting because really very early on in the 17th century these exotic uh, commodity timber had replaced native timbers as uh, the best uh, timber to use to make these kinds of instruments. And that's true of woodwind instruments of any description. Um, but it's interesting that um, in this apparently very peripheral part of Britain, um, there was a, you know, a skilled turning using materials that across half the globe. Um, in very brief terms, the two, two scholars have um, have been able to use this instrument to make a reconstruction of um, the thing itself and to analyze the sound and tell us what that you know what that can tell us about the music um, it differs in a variety of ways from a modern chanter um, the placing of the holes and the, the various elements of it um, like most instruments of this period um, it's slightly lower in pitch than um, a modern uh, chanter, that comes as no great surprise. It differs more interestingly in terms of its intonation, in terms of how the scale um, operates. And this is this is quite a complicated area because um, these these instruments, in effect, are not using equal temperament of the sort that you would find on the piano. Um, they are there are options as to how you arrange the. Um, how you, how you arrange the way the notes uh, fall out. Um, and of course the harmonics of this are, they're not being played solo, they're being played with drones that have their own harmonics. So the relationship between the drones and the chant of displaying the melody is quite complex. Um, but anyway, um, Julian um, Goodacre, a bagpipe maker and a music, musical scholar, musicologist called Barnaby Brown, took extremely precise measurements of this instrument um, I'm showing you details here of how the holes, which appear to be very worn down, um, actually were, if you like, were manufactured, they were carved in that way, um, very differently from, from, from contemporary woodwind instruments. We've, we've um, x-rayed it, as you can see here, to make sure that we get the very most, because uh, you can blow those up and make highly precise copy from that. Um, I should mention that you see the silver towards the very base there where the where it's bound up there's a, a an 18th century silver binding that shows that it was already broken in the 18th century and very carefully repaired um, this is a, a binding that contains silver so this was um quite a high class thing to carry you know as a, as a tool it was quite a special thing um to carry around and to repair in that way um, but of course it was already special in the 18th century because Ian Dahl himself was very well known as a composer and as a poet and in fact 
over time, his um, poetry was probably considered even more important than his pibroch, his uh, piping compositions. Um, I'm just going to very, very briefly um, play you a very short section of uh, pibroch played on the reproduction of this instrument. And I'll just, for that, I will have to escape from here and just give you that for a second. Um, and I, I fully appreciate that may not be to everybody's taste. I'm going to stop sharing the image there, um, and I expect you can see me again. Um, so to very quickly just point out that 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 that, that may that may sound unfamiliar to your ears, but it would equally sound somewhat different to a piper today because there are certain notes in that scale that are sharper uh, than they would be played today. And so it's that the, the chanter itself has caused great excitement amongst musicologists uh, and, and, and people who are very keen on piping. Um, I can't help but um, mention some of these things in passing. So Ben, I realize I've spoken longer than perhaps you intended me to do, so I'm happy to um, be handed back over to you. Well, I really appreciate that, Stephen. That was great. And I, I have to kind of hold myself back as well, because being a musician and a woodworker, I have all these highly specific questions about that chanter. Um, I'd really like to engage both of you in conversation. Uh, but something I wanted to reflect on just real quickly is, so when we talk about that uh, specific chanter and how there's a discovery in reproducing that chanter, and you find out that there's a different temper to the scale, something very different than what maybe our contemporary ears are used to. And so there's a complexity there where you hear that temper against the drones behind it, which, which is such an evoc evocative picture window into history. Um, you know, and there's something about like smelling food, hearing music, uh, clothes, you know, these things of, of culture that really bring you to the place immediately. And what I wanted to ask you, Stephen, is how was the music, as it was transported from Scotland to Nova Scotia, did it go through much change or was it maybe even more preserved or more um, historically preserved in, in Nova Scotia? I'm not really sure the answer there. Right. Um, yeah, I see what you mean. I mean, I think, well, I think by the time the instrument was taken across the Atlantic, it was already understood to have a, an important heritage. It's the figure of um, Ian Dahl, the, the grandfather, who gives it that importance. So it's both a working tool that is valuable and a cultural thing. Um, and the, you know, to the, at the start, it's certainly not the only set of bagpipes, of course, that was being taken to Nova Scotia in around the start of the 19th century. Um, and it's not the only uh, one to have survived, but it was a relic and, 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 and at the time. Um, what I think is obviously quite unfortunate is that not all the parts survived, which makes me suspect that um, it had already lost perhaps the oldest components um, in, in John Roy's time. I mean, this was, this was a guy who was in his 50s already. So it, it may be that when he inherited the chanter, um, it not only had a new bag and mouthpiece, which would be very normal, but possibly uh, more up-to-date drones. It may have moved from having uh, two drones to three drones, this kind of thing, um, because the precise way in which you make them, you know, it's, it's, it's an instrument that has separate component parts and, and was evolving constantly, really, uh, through the 18th century. So... Um, the fact that it belonged to this famous piper, it was an emblem in and of, of itself of Scottish heritage. And, and you talk about the, remote, the romanticization of um, being from Scotland 
and preserving that. And maybe the culture even changes a bit there. But that seems so different than what, Daniel, you said in your story about Robert Walker going on to Charleston and Charleston being this extremely contemporary, very modern place. And he's um, building very high-end furniture. And so there's less of that nostalgia about Scotland. However, he has this huge network of Scottish craftsmen. And so could you speak to that a little bit as well? Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's a really great point. So in Charleston, there is this community of um, sort of expatriate Scotsmen who do preserve a culture, but they preserve it in, I think, a very intentional way that is as much about reinforcing the connections between themselves as sort of a block within the business community uh, as it is sort of a cultural thing. Now, granted, within you know, religion, they're, they're generally worshiping at First Scots Presbyterian Church. Um, Walker is buried in the cemetery there. Um, there are social groups that, that these craftsmen are um, part of, which is very similar to, um, for example, the German uh, speaking craftsmen who are also part of these communities. But, you know, they're, um, they are deploying their origin for, for, reasons beyond nostalgia, I guess is the way to put it. Mm -hmm. yeah. Is there something that comes across in Robert Walker's furniture building that is um, signature Scottish? Is there a flavor there that translates? I mean, that's a really good question. I mean, I think in, in some ways, Stephen might actually be better positioned to, to comment on that um, because you know he is part of the larger, um, Atlantic world. Um, yeah. What do you think, Stephen? Is there something inherently Scottish to um, Sir Robert Walker's furniture? Hi. Um, I, I'm not sure that there is. Um, and I, I mean, I haven't studied Walker's furniture in immense detail, but I mean, it's an interesting, this is a time which is becoming uh, the kind of uh, regional differences are beginning to iron out. Um, and the mere fact that, um, you know, that, that someone in Cooper is using the London Book of Prices in 1793 tells you a lot about how uh, fashion is moving, you know, is arriving in somewhere like Cooper almost instantaneously within a, you know, within a year or something, you know, that the, the, they know what is happening. And this is about uh, the, ava the availability of print culture. Um, uh, I know the book was certainly not inexpensive. It was an investment for Walker, but it was probably somewhat uh, less expensive than a similar pattern book would have been like 50 years before that. Um, and, and, and you can see that in, in, in just the sheer numbers of them that were circulating. Um, and there's, there, there is a huge contrast between these small, relatively isolated communities leaving uh, the Northwest Highlands and going to the equally uh, sparsely populated Nova Scotia, where of course, some of these, many of these people um, really didn't speak English very well, if at all. Um, they certainly didn't write English or read it. Um, in his uh, memoirs, for example, the younger John Mackay uh, speaks about, he emphasizes really his father's um, learning, having been sent away to school in, in Thurso, which would be like, well, I don't know, 80 miles away or something, um, to, be, to learn to read, obviously, at a point when, uh, although Gaelic was now being printed, it was in a very limited way. Um, so, you know, Gaelic had not been included in the print revolution of the uh, 15th, 16th century. And so the, you know, it's a disadvantage there. So these people, so I'm going to explain, you know, in the sense of looking at how this culture is, is, um, uh, it's, 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 it's quite a vulnerable culture at the time that these people are settling. Um, and yeah. it's no surprise in a way that it, it that, 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 that um, although it's incredibly important emotionally, uh, facility and Gallic and so on dies out very quickly through yeah, the 19th century. Yeah. That's a really interesting point. I think that's a commonality that we see um, in the theme of immigration is assimilation. And the I really like what you said about the vulnerability of culture. 
And, and to that, I, I wanted to ask you, Daniel, um, you talked about the enslaved cabinet makers working there in, in Charleston as well. And tell me a little, a little bit more about that climate during that time period. Tell me about the enslaved craftsmen of Charleston. I mean, how numerous were they? Um, what specifically are they doing? And what material culture do we see, or what uh, residual material culture do we see from that influence as well? Yeah, I mean, so there is incredible work being done right now by people like uh, Tiffany Moman, Dr. Torin Gatson, and their um, Black Craftspeople uh, Archive, um, specifically in their case, starting with Charleston. Um, we know from the Mesda Craftsman database that uh, Charleston was home to the majority of identifiable enslaved craftsmen. Uh, and I think that's because we've read those records so closely, not because they didn't exist elsewhere. Um, enslaved craftsmen were at work at all levels of the building, furnishing, uh, building and furnishing trades, um, as well as trades that may seem sort of strange, like silversmithing. Um, there's a great example, um, Scottish immigrant, Alexander Petrie, in the middle of the 18th century, is a silversmith, and he has an enslaved silversmith working with him. Um, what makes Walker so um, remarkable is the wrong term, uh, but interesting in this regard is that um, he appears to um, have had, for whatever reason, we can only guess, a difficult time um, convincing these people to stay and not to sort of um, self-emancipate and move on. And so he advertises. And in those advertisements, he's very clear about, you know, how to identify them based on what they bring with them, based on what they're wearing, um, but also based on their skills. So he makes it very clear that these people, you know, are not just anonymous workmen or, or anonymous um, people, but that, you know, they are James, a cabinet maker, or mm -hmm. Rob, a sawyer and a cabinet maker. Um, and so I think that's, that's really important evidence. It lets us actually just to flesh out the role these, these men were playing within, within his shop. Um, you know, I would say it's probably hard to look at any piece of American furniture made in, in the South and not find a link, um, certainly an economic link, but in reality, um, from bricks to wood to even finish work, um, you know, the, the hands of these enslaved laborers are there. We simply have to sort of recognize it. Uh, and Walker gives us this remarkable window to do it because of the advertisements that, he, that he's forced to place. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So there's a lot of indication that these people are doing highly skilled trades. And um, it really, and that's identified through these broadsides. Um, I wanted to encourage any, everybody listening to, if you have questions, please pop them in the box. And we have a question, so I'd like to just um, address that right away. And so the question is, how do these two stories connect to the vast experience of immigrants across time and place? Specifically, what do these stories reveal about the transformation of identity, belonging, place, and the concept of roots? So that's very, very philosophical, very expansive question. So uh, <laughs> who wants to take that one first? Um, Do you want to try first, Stephen? <laughs> well, that's, that's, yeah, it, it's a huge. That is a very huge question, um, and it's and it's actually very unusual to be able to chart, um, however artificially, maybe if, uh, the kind of a family um, going across, you know, sort of the, the grandparents, parents, sons, grandsons, and so on to see. Um, how, how that how their uh, self perception modifies over time um, as they become obviously in, in this case more and more Canadian, um, uh, and I just wonder whether yeah someone like Walker becomes almost instantly American. I mean, not not so much that he doesn't attend the Scotch Presbyterian Church and so on and so forth, um, but. I, I think that you know it depends on your circumstances. I just wonder whether at that period of time, um, the uh, you know the, 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 the Highlanders settling in 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 that part of Nova Scotia retained their identity, self identity, for a little longer because they were remained fairly isolated in in, in the centre, but fairly 
fairly low population. It was about to change because it's ironically, um, the place got, you know, became quite industrialized in the 19th century. Um, but if, you know, something like the piping tradition um, has, has held firm and uh, the, the, you know, that it's in, in that particular family, it didn't, it, it died out, but it's in, in, in that part of, of Canada, um, it is still very live, very much alive today. Um, and uh, so, anyhow, <laughs> um, Daniel, what do you, what yeah, do you want I mean, to? So first I'll say, I mean, you know, within Charleston today, if you go to First Scots Presbyterian Church, I mean, today they very much embrace kind of the, the 20th century nostalgic view of Scottish culture writ large. Um, with bagpipes and, and everything else. I think for Robert Walker, who dies in 1833, you know, I, I think he, uh, I'm guessing here, I think he values the connections that he has. He clearly feels closely enough connected with home that he has put on his tombstone that he's from um, Cooper in Fife, um, which is one of the ways we were able to sort of connect him back. Um, but, you know, I think he sort of achieves that goal, perhaps, of becoming American, becoming like his neighbors. Interestingly, one of the things he doesn't do, which we often see craftsmen do in America as they sort of um, become more and more successful, he never really invests in agriculture uh, in any way. Um, oftentimes, you see these craftsmen sort of be craftspeople until they can buy enough land to become planters and to enslave enough people to run those um, operations. He doesn't really do that. Um, he, he buys some real estate in Charleston on and off. He's leasing property, but he seems to be much more interested in, I guess we might call sort of industrial capitalism, um, buying into banks and insurance companies and railroads and bridge companies uh, and things like that. And so it makes me wonder also maybe a little bit about his, his youth uh, and wondering if his parents were maybe agriculturalists and, and his whole goal was to, was to get away from that and not go back to that even in a um, much larger scale context. Thank you, Daniel. I really appreciate that. And thank you, Stephen, as well. Those are great answers. Um, I wanted to jump in with another question from Michael Jeffrey Bramwell. And Michael asks, what is known about the enslaved craftsmen outside of skill and first names? Uh, that's a great question, and it really depends on the individual. Um, something I'm really proud of within the Mesta Craftsman database is we do track these people. And so, um, and, and in fact, oftentimes they get biographical entries in things like the furniture of Charleston. Um, sadly, usually we know about them because, um, you know, these sort of pop up in the gaps between the records. Um, often in records relating to those who were enslaving them, but that's not to say it always happens. And so, for example, um, coming out in just a week or two in the Mass Journal will be an article by Tiffany Moman that actually talks about uh, a, a formerly enslaved and then freed um, craftsman named John Williams. Um, so oftentimes we can start with those pieces of information, a name, a craft, a place, and we can start building it out, but it is a challenge, but a challenge that is always worth pursuing. So that's a great question. Yeah, it definitely is. You know, something I wanted to mention too. Oops, I'm sorry. Sorry, I mean, I should, yeah, I have not much to say. That I did notice that the um, Simon in the in the newspaper advertisement does not speak good English, um, which immediately caught my attention because, of course, I'm dealing with people who who, who didn't necessarily speak good English either at that time. Um, and, and, and John Mackay was, was slightly privileged, in fact, in, in, in both he and his father having been taught English and, and learning to read, um, which would have marked them out quite noticeably when they arrived um, in, in, the, in the kind of transplanted Scottish communities in Nova Scotia. Um, and, and, what, and also, I mean, what Dan, Daniel's uh, telling us earlier, uh, um, is, is cause a reminder that in many cabinet workshops, these are the works of many hands and you're not necessarily looking at the physical work of the man who placed his label. Connection to price books as well, insofar as some of these, because um, we tend to see the price book as a pattern book, um, which it partly is, but of course it's also 
um, basically able um, of agreed uh, rates between the master and the journeyman as to um, you know what you will be paid piece rate for composing the different parts of a given piece of furniture. Oh, that makes sense. I never really looked at it from that viewpoint. So it's also kind of um, securing decent pay for the apprentice and the journeyman as well. And, and I'll say, interestingly enough, in the London Cabinet Maker Book of Prices, one of the notations that Brad and John were able to record is one in which he actually gives um, sort of conversion rates for that work based on um, where he is at the time. So he says, you know, I'm, this is what it says here, but in Charleston, it's this doubled minus 25%, things like that. Mm -hmm. I wanted to just uh, circle back around for a second and talk about the enslaved craftsmen of Charleston and, um, and things like, because mostly what we know about um, enslaved people being able to bring any individualized belongings is that almost nothing was able to be brought in the Middle Passage. But I think that something um, that is worth pointing out that really relates to what Stephen's been talking about today is that the rare exception to that is that we see musical instruments. And so we think we see things like the early banjo um, popping up in the Caribbean. And it's confounding because it really kind of goes against what we've understood for a long time. But I think um, the reasoning behind it, at least what's been teased out, is that for these enslaved people to be able to carry a musical instrument across the Middle Passage allowed for them to have some morale, which they, which the slave owners realized actually led to, you know, people surviving longer. And, and I think, you know, I think that's the thing is that these music especially is just so inherently cooked in our culture. But I wanted to ask you, Daniel, what else do you see that's really teased out um, through history that enslaved people would have that would be their own personal belongings? You know, that's a, um, that's a really great question. Um, and I think there's some really good work going on, mostly archeologically, that addresses that in various contexts. Um, because I think the ability to have one's own things is, a, is an important marker of, um, of identity. Uh, we know very little could physically cross the Atlantic with them, uh, virtually nothing. But what they could bring were things that were in their heads. They could bring culture with them. And um, there's a persistence to culture. Um, and I think, you know, in a way, um, you know, the, 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 the chanter speaks to this as well, though it physically could make it here, um, you know, one wonders, if they had arrived, if, if, if Highland Scots had arrived in Nova Scotia and not been able to bring sets of pipes, how long would it have been before somebody would have used their knowledge to make a set? Um, and I think it also speaks to the importance of music um, as an important part of material culture that's actually um, transmitted over space and brought with people. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think for our next episode, we could talk about the differences and the similarities and the difficulties of conserving furniture and musical instruments, things made out of wood. That's a whole other conversation. Well, I, don't, I think we've run a little bit over our time, but I wanted to give you guys one more opportunity if there's anything that you'd like to recap or something we didn't touch on that you'd really like to get back around to. So, uh, Daniel, go ahead first, if you'd like. I just thought, uh, you know, I just want to thank you, Ben, and you, Stephen, for um, for being part of the conversation today. Um, I think this is a really, really important project, and it's something which is each and every one of us within our own history, um, but also within the larger conversations we're having around the world today about um, human rights, but also the ability of people to um, seek uh, safety and opportunity. So this, this is not a new story, but I think it's always interesting to think about it in the context of the past and the choices people made in the past when they um, made these steps and, and chose to um, break with where they had always been and move um, to a new place. Thank you very much, Daniel. I really appreciate that. And Stephen, is there anything you'd like to say in conclusion? 
Yeah, well, indeed. And I mean, um, it's, it's, it's always sobering to be reminded that it's such a bold uh, decision to leave one's own country, which is in, in, in that period as now, so often is going to be a permanent uh, move um, and absolutely, you know, uh, a life defining changing moment. Um, and it's easy to forget that when you're studying these people 200 years ago, and it seems you know, it's, 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 but it's, it's important to remember that when we're dealing with with um, these individuals and, and examining their um, their cultural um, baggage, mm -hmm. for better word. Absolutely. Well, thank you both, Daniel and Stephen, for sharing your time with us and your vast knowledge. I really appreciate it, and thank you for all the folks that tuned in today as well. Um, so if you'd like to learn a little bit more about it, there's some resources I've got here. If you want to view Thomas Sheraton's Cabinet Maker and Upholster's Drawing Book, owned and signed by Robert Walker, you can visit the collection at um, mesto.org, and you can also virtually thumb through every single page of it at archive.org, which is really amazing. Um, and to read more about the process of reproducing Ian Dahl's Chanter, visit Pipemaker Julian Goodacre's article at Good... Uh, it's called goodbagpipes.com, or to view it at the National Museum Scotland, visit nms.cc.uk. And you can also listen to Barnaby Brown playing original compositions of Ian Dahl on his reproduction chanter on Spotify. We all know about Spotify, of course. So thank you everyone for joining us today. Thank you so much, Stephen, for joining us all the way from Scotland. And thank you, Daniel, I really appreciate it. Thank you.